Destroyer of worlds. Now sit back and enjoy as the story unfurls. This is a land of nightmares, of spirits unclean, where the darkest horror is the one yet unseen. This is a place without pity, a world with no hope, an unholy place of darkness where mortal men cannot cope. The only lights are the fires in this land of lost souls. The hellish heat rises from the ground made of coals. I am your nightmare. Defiler of dreams, be as loud as you like, for I relish your screams. This is your new home, your own personal hell. I am your only companion, tormentor as well. My words are my weapons, my tongue is my knife, and with these things I'll torment you for the rest of unlife. I know the unknowable, I have seen your soul. The only way to escape it is to leave dead and cold. But even that cannot save you, you'll be sent right back into this darkest of nightmares, into the pits of the black. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I am a cyclone beginning to whirl. I am the dark dream that has just begun. So stick around with me and we'll have lots of fun. I'll destroy your whole world. I'll kill all your friends. But please do not worry. I'll save your soul for the end. I'll rip your heart from your chest and devour it whole. As you take your final breath, I shall capture your soul. I am darkness that comes in the night. Don't try to resist me. You won't win this fight. Now you're mine for eternity. Let the torture begin. I think we will start with damnation and the judgment of sin. Then we'll move on to torture. That's my favorite part. Then we'll end with the damned ripping your body apart. Welcome to damnation eternal. Your hell starts today. God can no longer hear you, no matter how much you pray. Welcome to your eternal nightmare. We'll be the best of friends. This is the start of eternity. The darkness will never end. Tim Valley, now I am become death. Kane and Lena are together again. Saul's transformation continues. Quote, At the lighthouse the beacon was dark. The beacon was dark, and something was trying to spill out of him, or course through him on its way to somewhere else. The shadows of the abyss are like the petals of a monstrous flower that shall blossom within the skull and expand the mind beyond what any man can bear. But whether it decays under the earth or above on green fields, or out to sea in the very air, all shall come to revelation and to revel in the knowledge of the strangling fruit. He was still in shock from the bar kept believing that if he went back it would prove to be some kind of waking vision or even a terrible joke. The smashing of old Jim's bloody fingers against the piano keys. Sadie's look of being undone, betrayed by her own words. Brad, standing there, gaze locked on the wall as if someone had frozen him in place. Thank God Trudy had already left. What would he tell Gloria when he saw her again? What would he tell Charlie? Saul parked the truck, stumbled to the lighthouse, unlocked the door, slammed it behind him, and stood in the entrance, breathing hard. He'd call the police, tell them to come to the bar, to check on poor old Jim and the others. He'd call the police, and then he'd try to get hold of Charlie out at sea, and then call anyone else he could think of, because something terrible must be happening here, something beyond his illness. But no one answered. No one answered. The phone was dead. 
He could run, but where to? The light had gone out. The light had gone out. Armed with a flare gun, Saul stumbled up the stairs, one hand against the wall to keep his balance. The splinter was an insect bite, or an overture, an intruder, or nothing. Nothing to do with this. As he slipped and almost fell, some kind of moisture on the steps, a fuzziness on the wall that came away in his hands that he had to brush off against his jeans. The light brigade. They'd given him an experimental drug or exposed him to radiation with their equipment. And the hand of the sinner shall rejoice, for there is no sin in shadow or in light that the seeds of the dead cannot forgive. Near the top, the wind whistled down briskly and he welcomed the chill. The way it told him a world existed outside of his mind helped him deny these symptoms that had now crept back in. He felt a strong tidal pull and a vibration that went with the pull, and he was burning up. Or was the lighthouse burning up? Because a glow awaited him at the top of the stairs, and not the faint green phosphorescence that now arose from the walls, the steps. No, this was a sharp light that knew its purpose. He could tell that already. But it was not the light from the lens, then he hesitated just below the lantern room for a moment. He sagged onto a step, not sure he wanted to see what new beacon had supplanted the old. His hands shook. He trembled. Could not get old Jim's fingers out of his head, nor the words of the sermon that still uncurled all unbidden from his mind, that he could neither resist nor keep out. But this was his place now, and he could not abandon it. He rose. He turned. He walked into the lantern room. The rug had been moved. The trapdoor lay open. A light shone out from that space, a light that circled and curved even as it had the discipline not to trickle across the floor or refract off the ceiling, but instead mimicked a door, a wall, rising from the watch room. Quietly, flare gun held tight, Saul crept closer to the edge of the trapdoor and the source of the light, while the feeling increased that the stairs behind him had grown stranger still, that he should not look back. Bending at the knees, he peered down into the watch room, feeling the heat of the light crossing his face his neck, singeing his beard. At first all he saw was a vast mound of papers and what looked like notebooks that now rose from the watchroom, a great behemoth, a disheveled library of shadow and reflection that leaped into and out of focus, ghosts and figments curling and questing, there but not quite there, a record that he did not understand because it did not yet exist. Then his eyes adjusted and the source of the light coalesced, a blossom, a pure white blossom with eight petals which had unfurled from the top of a familiar plant, whose roots disappeared into the papers below. The plant that had enticed him on the lighthouse lawn, so long ago, to reach down, drawn by a glitter, a gleam. An almost holy intensity rose from somewhere within and filled Saul up, along with a dizziness. Light was leaking out of him now, too, coursing down through the trapdoor to communicate with what lay below, and there came the sensation of something pulling him close, holding him tight of recognizing him. In rebellion against that, he rose from his crouch, arms out to the side for balance, teetering there on the edge of the trap door, staring down into that swirl of petals until he could resist no more, was falling into the pure white corona of a circle of fire, into a congregation of flames, a burning so pure that turning to ash was a kind of relief, engulfed by light that consecrated not just him but everything around him, anchoring receiver and received. There shall be a fire that knows your name, and in the presence of the strangling fruit, its dark flame shall acquire every part of you. When he regained consciousness, he was lying on the floor of the watchroom on his back, looking up. There was no mound of notebooks. There was no impossible flower. Just the bodies of Henry and Suzanne, with no apparent wounds upon them, 
expressions blank and more haunting because of it. He recoiled from them, crawled away from them, staring. In the shadows there might have been what looked like the limp, desiccated remains of a plant, but he had no desire other than to leave the space. He clambered up the ladder. A figure in silhouette stood in front of the open door to the railing. A figure with a gun. Impossibly, it was Henry. I thought you'd be gone longer, Saul, Henry said in a distant tone. I thought you might not even come back tonight. That maybe you'd go over to Charlie's, except Charlie is out fishing, and Gloria is staying with her father. Not that she would be out this late anyway, or be of much help to you, but just so you know where we stand. You killed Suzanne, Saul said, unbelieving even now. She wanted to kill me. She didn't believe in what I found. None of them believed. Not even you. You killed yourself. Your twin... Knowing that even if it made a difference, he couldn't reach the flare gun in time, or even make it two steps into a headlong flight down the stairs before Henry would shoot him too. A strange thing, Henry said, where before he had been indistinct, hurting, in need of succor, now he had snapped back into focus. A strange thing to kill yourself. I thought maybe it was a kind of wraith, but maybe Suzanne was right instead. Who are you? Ignoring him. I found it, that's all. Like I said I would, or it found me, only it wasn't what I thought. Do you know what it is, Saul? Almost pleading. There was no good answer to Henry's question. He took two steps toward Henry, as if he were watching someone else do it. He was an albatross, floating motionless and high above trough of air, gliding beneath the clouds with their dark underbellies, a coordinate of shadow and light that kept moving, a roving latitude and longitude, and far, far below stood Saul and Henry in the lantern room. Saul took a third step, the plant a beacon in his head. A fourth step, and Henry shot him in the shoulder. The bullet penetrated and passed through, when Saul didn't feel a thing. Saul was still floating far above, intent on navigation, on riding thermals, an animal that hardly ever came down to land but just kept flying and flying. Saul rushed Henry, rammed his bleeding shoulder into Henry's chest, and the two of them staggered grappling out of the door and toward the railing, Henry's gun spinning out of his hand and across the floor. So close, staring into Henry's eyes, Saul had the sense of the man being at a remove, a time delay, a gap or distance between receipt, acknowledgement, and response, a message coming to him from very far away, as if Henry were dealing with some other completely different situation, while on some level still able to appraise him, to judge him. When you hide your face, they are terrified, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Because Henry was drawing them both to the railing. Because Henry had a firm grip on him and was drawing them both to the railing. Except Henry was saying to Saul, What are you doing? But Saul wasn't doing it. Henry was and didn't seem to realize it. It's you, the albatross managed to say. You're doing it, not me. No, I'm not. Henry, beyond panic now, writhing and trying to get loose, but still leading them to the railing fast now, and Henry begging him to stop what he could not stop, yet Henry's eyes did not send out the same message as his words. Henry hit the railing, hard, and Saul a second later swung to the side by momentum, and they both went over, and only then, when it was too late, did Henry let go, the wind ripping screams from his throat, and Saul plummeted beside him through the cold, empty air, falling too fast, too far, while a part of him still looked down from above. The surf like white flames, surging and questing across the sand. I am come to send fire on the earth, 
and what will I if it be already kindled? The awful thud and crack when he hit. End quote. Camera tracks left behind the blue-tinted glass. Second three, we cut to extreme close-up on Kane's face, his head tucked next to Lena's as they embrace. His eyes are open, the whites are a little red, the stare is intense. Beat. He opens his eyes even a little wider. It is hard to catch in real time, but the points of light in Kane's eyes do not move in sync when they move. Second nine, extreme close-up, Lena, eyes open. The whites of her eyes are also a little red, but more importantly, the light at the bottom of her irises, which we might at first think a reflection of some external light, grows brighter. And before we fade to black, I must say that the light in Kane's eyes is so subtle as to potentially go unnoticed, which surely makes it hard for some in the audience to understand, especially consciously, what they are seeing, what Garland intended with these last two shots of the film. Recall the brightness that the biologist mentions in her last will and testament. Yes, I have explicitly said that Garland only read the first novel of the trilogy, but her description of the brightness in the third book is just a more elaborated description of something that is there from the first one. This, quote, By morning it had stopped raining and the sky was a searing blue, almost devoid of clouds. Only the pine needles strewn across the top of our tents and the dirty puddles and fallen tree limbs on the ground told of the storm the night before. The brightness infected my senses had spread to my chest. I can describe it no other way. Internally, there was a brightness in me, a kind of prickling energy and anticipation that pushed hard against my lack of sleep. Was this part of the change? But even so, it didn't matter. I had no way to combat what might be happening to me. I also had a decision to make, finding myself torn between the lighthouse and the tower. Some part of the brightness wanted to return to darkness at once, and the logic of this related to nerve, or lack of it. To plunge right back into the tower, without thought, without planning, would be an act of faith of sheer resolve or recklessness with nothing else behind it. End quote. But in the film's final scene here, the brightness in Kane's eyes does not grow like the brightness in Lena's. It is already there, and so in the moment we have no comparison. We must infer that the focus on Kane's eyes before the focus on Lena's eyes, with a notable alteration in the brightness in hers, is a deliberate echo. Her eyes becoming more like his eyes, Lena becoming, or having become, more like Kane. But then the unfortunate thing with the cutting to black, second 14, is that the average moviegoer seeing this sees a stinger ending, a twist like you might see in any horror film where the killer's hand pops up out of the earth, or the presumed dead eyes open suddenly, and these two transformed individuals are going to lead to the shimmer taking over the world, even though we've seen its contents burning, because the average moviegoer wants this to be an invasion story, wants the aliens to have a clear motive, a clear goal, and in not reading further in the series, Garland had neglected one of Vandermeer's primary themes, summed up in the biologist's narration of the one book of the trilogy that Garland actually read. Quote, Imagine, too, that while the tower makes and remakes the world inside the border, it also slowly sends its emissaries across the border in ever greater numbers, so that in tangled gardens and fallow fields its envoys begin their work. How does it travel, and how far? What strange matter mixes and mingles? In some future moment, Perhaps the infiltration will reach even a certain remote sheet of coastal rock, quietly germinate in those tidal pools I know so well. Unless, of course, I am wrong that Area X is rousing itself from slumber, changing, becoming different than it was before. The terrible thing, the thought I cannot dislodge after all I have seen, is that I can no longer say with conviction that this is a bad thing. Not when looking at the pristine nature of Area X and then the world beyond, which we have altered so much. 
Before she died, the psychologist said I had changed, and I think she meant I had changed sides. It isn't true. I don't even know if there are sides, or what that might mean, but it could be true. I see now that I could be persuaded. A religious or superstitious person, someone who believes in angels or in demons, might see it differently. Almost anyone else might see it differently. But I am not those people. I am just the biologist. I don't require any of this to have a deeper meaning. I am aware that all of this speculation is incomplete, inexact, inaccurate, useless. If I don't have real answers, it is because we still don't know what questions to ask. Our instruments are useless. Our methodology broken. Our motivation selfish. End quote. Reviewing Annihilation for DePaul University's Environmental Critique blog, Christine M. Skolnick writes, 11th March 2018, quote, The larger forces of environmental destruction in the film seem alien throughout, but on the condition that we imagine the cosmic as an outside of nature, and perhaps more pointedly, when we ignore our own alien and hostile behavior. The permeability of the self and the internalization of destructive drives called the distinctions between the human, natural, and alien into question throughout the film. Is alienation an external or internal problem? End quote. Notably, Garland's film doesn't even pay lip service, though one could infer it, to Vandermeer's environmental themes, perhaps fulfilling the Ballardian impulse better than Vandermeer, turning the larger themes explicitly and ultimately exclusively inward. Second 15, the animations that remain for the above-the-line credits begin. A fractal chaos that starts simple enough, two colorful curves erupting from single points, one upward just left of center, one downward just right of center, then immediately separating into multiple curves each. Title designer Matt Lawrence's own website explains, quote, Whilst doing research at the start of the project, I determined that we wanted to create what are known as fractal flames to best visualize the beauty of mathematical chaos and the shimmer. There are tools that do this in After Effects, but found they were incredibly difficult to control and often crashed After Effects. I knew this wasn't the way to go. Thankfully, I discovered a standalone software called Chaotica, which could create the look we were after. This is a fantastic piece of software that allows you to build your own fractal flames. Over the next few months, I played around with this software and was able to output a large number of different styles and looks of animated fractals. We then made selects of the preferred looks. Once everyone was happy, I re-rendered them at film resolution. If any of you have ever generated fractals, you know that these can be a very processor-heavy thing to compute. It was very much a balance of quality versus speed. Through trial and error, optimum settings were found that gave the best results versus render time. It still took many weeks of constant overnight rendering to produce the fractals even with these settings. Alex Garland wanted the topography to almost not be there, barely visible in the chaos. In After Effects, the topography was positioned between layers of fractals, wiping them in and out, and burying them in the comp. End quote. The process is slow. The color, mostly pinks and reds at first, then a lot of greens expanding behind what we will only gradually realize are the title in black, Annihilation. It all turns to yellow, like the decay of a natural system, 
and it destroys the title itself. Then, pinks and reds mostly to the left, greens and yellows to the right, as our first credit appears. Written for the screen and directed by Alex Garland. Blues take over the left, yellows the right, blues turn to yellows and greens. Based on the novel by Jeff Vandermeer. And then the lines, curving lines that do and do not make patterns. Fractal chaos, yellow mostly behind. Producers, Scott Rudin, PGA, Andrew McDonald, PGA, Alan Reich, PGA, Eli Bush, PGA. White and yellow lines give way to green and blue, pink swirls, yellow spiral specks. From the third Southern Reach novel, Acceptance, The Biologist's Last Will and Testament, continued. Quote, Did I find my husband? In a way, if not in the form in which I had known him. On the far side of the island, in the late afternoon, after I had burst through nettles and scrub and sticker, lacerating long grasses, all of it overshadowed by the close-knit copse of wind-gnarled black pines, burst through to a tranquil cove that cupped a white sand beach and shallows that extended a fair distance before the darkness of deep water took over. On the beach, a scattering of low-lying concrete pilings and rocks, all that remained of an abandoned pier from another age, created a perch for more than a dozen cormorants. A single stunted pine, the height of a person, stood defiant amid rocks and cormorants alike, blackened and almost bare of needles. On one outstretched branch, the unlikely silhouette of a common horned owl with sharp tufted ears, rust-brown face with white feathers at chin and throat, mottled gray and brown body. My loud approach should have alarmed it, but this owl just perched there, surrounded by the cormorants sunning themselves. An unnatural scene, to me, and it brought me up short. I thought at first the owl must be hurt, more so when I came closer and it still didn't move, unlike the whirling circle of cormorants that, complaining bitterly, flew away. A long, low line over the water, exiled to rove, restless. Any other owl would have taken wing and disappeared back into the forest. But instead, it remained glued to the ridged, scaly bark of the branch, staring out at the fading sun with enormous eyes. Even when I stood right beside the tree, awkward on the rocks, the owl did not fly, did not look over at me. Injured or dying, I thought again, but cautious, ready to retreat, because an owl can be a dangerous animal. This one was huge four pounds at least, despite its hollow bones, lightweight feathers. But nothing I had done yet had provoked it, and so I stood there as the sun began to set, the owl beside me. I had studied owls early in my career, and knew that neuroses were unknown among them as opposed to other more intelligent bird species. Most owls are also beautiful, along with another quality that is hard to define, but registers as calm in the observer. There was such a hush upon that beach, and one that didn't register with me as sinister, at dusk, the owl turned its fierce yellow gaze upon me at last, and with the tip of its outstretched wing brushing against my face, the bird launched itself into the air in a smooth, silent arc that sent it off toward the forest behind me. Forever gone, or so I believed, with any of a number of reasons to account for its odd behavior. The lines between the eccentricities of wildlife and the awareness imposed by Area X are difficult to separate at times. I needed to seek shelter for the night, and I found on the far western edge of the beach a small circle of rocks around the blackened ash of an old fire, above the high tide mark, set back almost into the beginning of the forest. I found, too, in the last glimmers of light, an old tent, faded by the sun, weathered and crumpled by storms. Someone had lived here for a time, and without daring to think who it might have been, I made camp there, started my own fire, cooked a rabbit I had killed earlier that afternoon. Then, tired, I fell asleep to the sound of the waves 
under a soft and subdued canopy of stars. I woke only once during the night and saw the owl perched opposite me across the fire, atop my backpack. It had brought me another rabbit. I dozed again, and it was gone when I woke. I stayed there three days, and I admit I did so because of the owl, and because the cove was near perfect. I could see spending my life there, but also because I wanted to know more about the person who had made the fire, lived in the tent. Even in disarray and so old, it was clearly a standard-issue tent, although it carried no Southern Reach logo on it. A little ways into the forest behind the tent, I found an expedition-issue sidearm, much like my own, in a rotting holster, amid wild flowers and sedge weeds and moss. I found the undershirt from an expedition uniform, and then the jacket and socks strewn across that expanse as if given up willingly, even joyously, or as if some animal or person had thrown them there. I did not bother to gather them up or try to recreate this exoskeleton of a person. I would not find a name, I knew that, and I did not find a letter, either. I would never really know if it might have been my husband who had camped there or some other person even more anonymous to me. And yet there was the owl, always watching over me, always nearby, always a little closer, a little tamer, but never completely tame. It would drop twigs at my feet, at random, more as if through some absent-mindedness than on purpose. It would bow at me, a typical owl behavior, then spend the next hours distant, almost sullen. Once or twice it would perch at close to my height, and I would approach as an experiment, only for the owl to hiss at me almost like a cat and beat its wings and fluff out its feathers until I had retreated. Other times, on the branch high up, the owl would sway and bob, bob and sway, moving its body from side to side while gripping its perch in the same place, then looked down at me stupidly. I moved on, following the shore, sometimes also shadowed by the cormorants. I did not expect the owl to join me, but I am unashamed to say I was glad when it did. By the end of the second week, it ate from my hands at dusk, before going off to its nocturnal life. During the night I would hear its curious hollow hooting, a sound many find mysterious or threatening but that I have always found playful or deeply irreverent. The owl would reappear briefly toward dawn, once in a tangle of feathers as it plunged its head into the sand and ruffled out its plumage, giving itself a dry bath and then picking at lice and other parasites. The thought crept into my head when I wasn't careful, and then I would banish it. Was this my husband in altered form? Did he recognize me? Or was this owl simply responding to the presence of a human being? Unlike the uncanny presence of other animals, there was no such feeling here. No sense of it to me, at least. But, I reasoned, perhaps I had become acclimated by then. Perhaps I'd reached a kind of balance with the brightness that normalized such indicators. When I came full circle back to the ruined lighthouse, the owl stayed with me. He tried even less for my attention, but in the twilight would appear in the branches of a tree outside the lighthouse, and we would stand there together. Sometimes he would already be there by mid-afternoon, if I walked through the shade of the dark trees, and follow me, making great hoot-hoots to warn of my coming. But never earlier, as if he remembered that I hated the unnatural in animals, as if he understood me. Besides, he had his own business, hunting. After a week, though, he roosted in the shattered upper spire of the lighthouse. The cormorants, too, reappeared there, or perhaps they were not the same cormorants, but I had not seen so many of the birds in that place before my explorations. During the day, the owl would sun himself up there before falling into a sleep that sometimes was accompanied by a low and nasal snore. During the night, I would fall asleep on the landing and above me here, so faint, the whisper as his wings caressed the air on his flight to the forest to seek prey. In those transitional moments between day and night, when anything seemed possible, or I tricked myself into believing that this was true, I began to talk to the owl. 
Even though I dislike anthropomorphizing animals, it did not seem important to withhold this communication because the evidence of his eccentric behavior was self-evident. Either he understood or did not, but even if not, sound is more important to owls than to human beings. So I spoke to him in case he was other than what he seemed, and as common courtesy, and as a way to help with the welling up of the brightness. Despite this, which might be foolishness, how could I ever truly recognize in him the one I'd sought, ever cross that divide? Yet there grew to be a useful symbiosis in our relationship. I continued to hunt for him, and he continued to hunt for me, although with a kind of sloppiness, as if unintentional, rabbits and squirrels falling from his perch down to mine. In some ways, wordless on his end and based on the most basic principles of friendship and survival, this arrangement worked better than anything back in the wider world. I had still seen no person on the island, but now I found more evidence of a prior presence. It was not what I'd expected. End quote. The lines on the screen are almost all pink for executive producer Joe Byrne. End time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. It was a dream. We live inside a dream. is all we are. Annihilation.